You're fed up with the 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. Hi everyone and welcome to Business Breaks. My special guest today is Don Trone, CEO of 3Ethos and the founder and president of the Foundation of Fiduciary Studies. So Don is a thought leader in the field of fiduciary responsibility. He has written extensively on the subject and frequently speaks at industry events. In 2015, he was also named by Investment Advisor Magazine as the father of fiduciary and he is also one of the 35 most influential people in the financial services industry. He is a graduate of the U.S. Coast Guard Academy and has served for 10 years on active duty, most notably as a search and rescue helicopter pilot. He is also the first person to direct the Institute for Leadership at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Don, welcome to Business Breaks. Thank you, Dante. You know, just just so that your listeners are uh, are clear, I'm on the other side of the pond in the U.S. and not in the U.K. Yeah, it's the wonders of uh, technology these days, right? That we can even make it happen without having to be physically in person <laughs> meeting up. Yeah, that's like that. brilliant. So I was thinking, Don, for the benefit of listeners who might not know, can you explain what exactly is fiduciary responsibility? Sure. First of all, it's it's pretty much a global concept. I mean, clearly, the British Commonwealth and the U.S. share a very uh, share a common understanding of fiduciary responsibility. In Asia, fiduciary is catching on, uh, but there are cultural issues that kind of take precedence over the concept of fiduciary responsibility. But generally speaking, when we talk about fiduciary responsibility, it's it's about the legal responsibility somebody has to oversee or manage the assets of another person. And in the U.S., the regulators are attempting to subject uh, as many financial services professionals to a fiduciary standard as possible. Uh, unfortunately, the unintended consequences of that is that in an effort to put more people into a fiduciary net, they're lowering the standard. Mm. So 35 years ago, when I began researching and writing and teaching about fiduciary responsibility, uh, we did so presenting fiduciary as a gold standard. Mm. And today, unfortunately, it's become a broad. Wow. That's pretty disappointing, I guess, uh, given that, yeah, if we let standards drop to allow more people to participate, I guess, that can obviously create challenges with regard to maintaining quality of standards. And uh, I guess speaking about those standards, what led you to initially become interested in fiduciary responsibility? What stirred your passions, <laughs> as it were? Yeah, it's a very unusual story. As you mentioned, uh, first career as a Coast Guard, long-range search and rescue helicopter pilot. Uh, year eight of my 10-year mandatory obligation, I was assigned to Sitka, Alaska, which is an island off uh, the Alaskan coach. And uh, this was 1985. So before the internet, before satellite, before everything that we enjoy today, uh, I decided that uh, being a remote island, what I wanted to do was to see if I, there was a remote master's degree that I could take. And back in 1985, there was no such thing as online training or online courses. 
Uh, and we had, but we did have three universities in the United States that had a distance master's degree, and one was the American College. And uh, the master's that they were offering was a master's in financial services. And uh, at that time, uh, I had no Wall Street experience or background at all, but I figured training in financial services doesn't go to waste. I mean, we have to know how to prudently manage our own asset. So I uh, started taking the coursework and absolutely fell in love with it. I was surprised that I would actually in the subject. And when it came time to write the master's theses, I decided to do the theses on how to integrate a fiduciary standard into investment advisory practices. And I had a particular eye on lay fiduciaries, which I would define as the men and women who uh, are not in the financial services industry, but are called upon to manage the assets of pension plants and foundations, endowments, and private trusts. Um, financial pools of money you have in the UK, in the Commonwealth. Uh, in the case of the United States, now I haven't done the research in the UK, but in the case of the United States, when we talk about these lay fiduciaries, the non-financial services professionals, we're talking about 17 and a half million men and women. Wow. And in turn, they're managing more than 30% of the nation's liquid investable wealth. So the assets held in these pension funds. So the conduct of these 17 and a half million men and women has a direct impact on the fiscal health of the nation. And as I thought about that uh, and did my research, what I realized is no one has responsibility for training the 17 and a half million. Mm. No one. No regulator in Washington, D.C. has responsibility uh, for the 17 and a half million. Uh, furthermore, as you know, having the orientation of a military pilot, what I was looking for is checklists and training programs for the 17 and a half million. Mm. Uh, so as you know, military pilots, we live and die by the quality of our checklists and uh, the quality of our training program. And none of that existed. Uh, in the fiduciary space. So as much as I love the Coast Guard, still love it, um, as much as I love being in a position to serve in a search and rescue capacity and helping people help to save lives, uh, I realized that I could also save and improve lives um, by improving investment decisions, how we manage investment decisions. And, uh, and I could do that for the rest of my life. I mean, the Coast Guard had plans for me but at some point, uh, I was going to have to stop flying. At some point, the military wants you to retire. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I don't want half of my productive life to come to a stop. Stop. I want to be passionate about something that I can do for the rest of my life. And that's when I decided to focus on fiduciary responsibility. That's a wonderful answer. And it shows a lot about you in terms of that maturity and taking a leadership role where there probably wasn't one, and also showing those transferable skills in terms of the military discipline, the codes of conduct, and having that responsibility. I mean, as you rightly put, I mean, there's responsibility for saving people in the moment, but then the longer term aspect of a person's life, it's minimizing the potential pain of those negative consequences, because whilst money isn't everything, as they say, it's certainly... The lack of it can lead to certain negative consequences like mental health disorders and a lot of pain for a lot of families. So it's really um, can't be under, can't be overestimated the value of having sound financial plan. Yeah, that, that was very well said. You captured the essence of that very well. 
And uh, moving on from fiduciary responsibility, because I know you have something that I'm also very interested to talk about, which is behavioral <laughs> governance <laughs> and this whole idea of leadership being a more having a more integrative approach, um, not just for uh, how you conduct yourself around your team, but the quality of your decision make. And uh, I can see just from our interactions that quality is a is a key part of um, your ethos. I, I guess um, going into that behavioral governance framework, what are some of the key principles that leaders need to be aware of? Yes. Actually, can I do a little bit of a running head start to come up? You know, Absolutely. So you're, you're correct in that uh, the uh, Coast Guard background had a huge influence on my view of fiduciary responsibility, uh, particularly the leadership role. And I never really pursued that interaction between leadership and fiduciary responsibility until 2007. So about 20 years after I started writing, I was approached by a number of indigenous tribal leaders in the United States, Native American Indians, and asked if I would write a manual that the 268 sovereign tribes within the United States. So again, I'm going to re repeat that. Within the borders of the United States, we have 268 indigenous sovereign nations. And these sovereign nations were now receiving trust funds from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, some date back to 1820. These are trust funds that were holding monies for mineral rights, water rights, timber, and the like. And uh, the tribal leaders came to me and said, would you write a manual that would help guide uh, tribal councils and how to more prudently manage the assets? And I really felt honored uh, to be asked. And we had a meeting for two days to discuss what the book would be about and how I would approach the subject. And as I was doing the research for the book, what I discovered were these incredible historical quotes from tribal leaders from hundreds of years ago up to the present. And what I realized was that these historical tribal leaders had a better sense of fiduciary responsibility, of leadership and stewardship to the tribe. They had a better sense of that than we do in the modern concept. In other words, their quotes, their culture did a better job of framing what it means to be a fiduciary than our own rules and regulations. Uh, but the key here was uh, they first and foremost recognized their leadership and stewardship role to the tribe, to the sovereign nation. And what I realized then was that we have never studied how certain leadership behaviors impact the quality of fiduciary outcome. It was literally two or three months after I had this epiphany working with the Native Americans that uh, the Coast Guard um, Academy Alumni Association approached me and said, uh, we're standing up a new leadership think tank at the Coast Guard Academy. And uh, we're wondering if we could convince you to come back to be the first person to head this new institute. And um, when you get a request like that, <laughs> it's uh, very difficult to say no. And uh, so in my mind, I worked out this concept of an 18-month sabbatical. I'll take an 18-month sabbatical away from the fiduciary world, Wall Street, and help stand up this new leadership think tank. One of the projects that I worked on during that 18-month period was to research Hurricane Katrina. So folks in the UK probably are somewhat familiar with the event. Hurricane Katrina was the worst natural disaster uh, that our country ever faced. Uh, the hurricane slammed into New Orleans August 29, 2005, and in the first nine days, 
the Coast Guard rescued 24,500. And regrettably, no other government agency put up a similar response. And so following the crisis, Congress had hearings. Why did the Coast Guard get it right? And no one else show up. And so that was one of the projects I was working on, was to come up with a nice, clean, concise answer uh, to that question so we could share it with other government agencies, companies, not-for-profit organizations. And so what I discovered was that we had an inventory of the leadership and stewardship exhibited by the men. And I had the decision-making process uh, that was followed by the key decision-maker. And so the next logical step for me was to put the two together, integrate the two together, leadership with decision So I went looking for a framework that would be available in the marketplace that would enable me to do this, to model that. And I found nothing, which shocked me. You know, we have a million books on leadership, a million books on decision-making. No one's ever put the two together. And it was like a deja vu. It was like, <laughs> you know, 20 years earlier when I thought, oh, wait a minute, we got 17 and a half million lay fiduciaries and nobody's training them. And now we have a situation where we have leadership and decision-making and no one's ever put the two together. <laughs> So I was pretty excited about that finding, and I went back to Coast Guard officials. I said, there's a huge opportunity. And they said, uh, we have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> we can no, tell you really passionate about it. So go ahead and start a company and continue, you know, this uh, work that you're doing. And that's when I started the company, uh, Three Ethos. It was shortly thereafter that I uh, expanded the concept to leadership, stewardship, and governance, three legs, leadership, stewardship, and governance. And uh, in turn, people at the United States Military Academy, West Point, uh, heard about what I was doing and they were intrigued. And so they invited me to do some leadership workshops at the Military Academy. Uh, the workshops were for Wall Street executives, financial services executives. And that's when I met uh, my counterpart at West Point. Dr. Sean Hanner, at that point he was Colonel Sean, who was the head of leadership development. And so we did some team teaching together and found that our work complemented. In 2015, he approached me and he said, look, I love your framework of leadership, stewardship, governance. I have headed up an academic research that has conducted research in the field of neuroleadership. By the way, this research, 2015, there were some people that were aware of the research, but back then it was not, you know... Uh, world-renowned, world-regarded. Today it is. Uh, today, Sean is uh, regarded to be in the top 1% of academic and scientific researchers. I mean, he is an academic rock star. So back in 2015, he said, look, I'm doing this research in neuro leadership. Uh, we have proven that there is such a thing as a natural-born leader, that there are certain individuals that have uh, a different brain mapping, different neurological capacity than the rest of it. And so he said, I think that research might validate the framework you have put together. So I took a look at it, and sure enough, this incredible research, I found that if I took out the word leadership and replaced it with the word fiduciary, everything that this research was looking at validates everything we were trying to do in the fiduciary world. And uh, so we began to integrate uh, our work and then found ourselves, we needed to put a name on this this new body of research. And that's when we selected the name Behavioral Governance. Wow. So I've been giving you a long-winded answer to your question about the specific behaviors. And uh, so uh, what I can tell you is that as we were developing this research over this period of time, so again, it started roughly 2007, 2008, Sean and I become academic partners in 2015. And during that process, we're 
compiling, we're making an inventory of leadership behaviors and characteristics. And what we discover is that in the English language, now this is the American English, but in the American English language, we have over 250 words in our vocabulary that uh, describe leadership and pretty much an equal number of words to describe project management, decision-making, your, your, your side of the world. Mm. And uh, so one of the exercises we did was to say, okay, we've got this list of leadership behaviors and we have this list of behaviors and characteristics of men and women that are effective decision makers, effective project managers. We look at these words, two lists of words, what words are common to both lists? And we identified them. In addition, actually it was a little bit more than 10, maybe it was like 17 or 18. And then we added another filter, which was, all right, of this shorter list, how many of these words are directly correlated to the neurological marker of the exemplary leader? Uh, so, for example, um, not for example, actually, the six markers, uh, one is situational awareness, uh, another is self-complexity, the third is social astuteness, fourth is procedural justice, your capacity for moral and ethical decision-making, fifth is vision and inspiration, your ability to get people to follow you, and then finally, executive control, your moral control. So, if we said, these are the six markers that uh, are known to be exhibited by natural-born leaders, by exemplary leaders, then of these six markers, let's compare that to this list of leadership behaviors we have composed and see where we can map the neurological markers to the behaviors. And we ended up identifying 10 behaviors, five for leadership and five for stewardship. And to kind of make it a little spooky, spiritual, if you would, <laughs> Turns out the five leadership behaviors we had selected at going through this filtering process uh, all began with the letter C, and the five stewardship behaviors we had selected all began with the letter A. So, uh, you know, when we when people see our research, what we're able to say is these these ten behaviors they're just not arbitrarily selected. Uh, it's just not an intuitive process we went through. It, it's we were using neuroscience to actually narrow the, this list down to 10 specific behaviors. An amazing coincidence as well. You know, I, I there's sometimes when I'm thinking of frameworks for, I don't know, social media posts, I try and squeeze things into acronyms just as a game. And, you know, it's very difficult <laughs> sometimes. But to actually go through a very rigorous research process and then come up with these coincidences, that's, that's pretty pretty uh, special, should we say, uh, exceptional, if you will. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of neat. You know, you're going through this discovery process and uh, with always an eye towards training. Mm. So, you know, Dr. Hanna, Sean Hanna, his eye is always towards published research. Uh, mine has always been uh, towards training. You know, how do, how do we improve the management of investment decisions? and uh, communicate that to as many people as possible, pass that on to as many people as possible. And so I am always looking for a way to make things as simple as possible, not more complex, but as simple as possible, mm -hmm. because that's the only way we're, we're going to improve things. And so it's exciting when you go through a process like that and begin to narrow down and start seeing things coalesce, like, oh my God. We have a list of leadership behaviors, and it's a letter C. We have a list. Uh, that's when you—that's when you kind of know 
we're here. You know, we're we've landed <laughs> on the spot where where we need to get to. Wonderful. And coming back to you know the practical applications of behavioral governance, how can leaders use that framework to improve their decision? Uh, if you have an example, that would be great. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. you do. Well, first of all, I should make clear that when we start talking about behavioral governance, we're talking about a body of research that is applicable to any any industry, not simply financial services, not simply the military, any industry, whether it's for-profit, not-for-profit, a government agency or or a military unit. It's it's applicable across the board. And uh, that was critical in our design because, so 2015 to, that's 30 years. Or is it 20 years? 30 years, yeah. For the first 30 years, I don't know how many tens of thousands of advisors and trustees and investment committee members I had trained, but what I had observed over and over and over and over again, particularly with the lay fiduciaries, again, the non-financial services, 17 and a half million, is they really were not getting, they were not getting fiduciary. So we would provide the training and they would pay attention and they would be motivated to want to improve. Uh, their investment decisions, but the training just didn't stick. And so I started thinking about that. And what I realized is the reason why it's not sticking is because if you only apply a body of knowledge once a quarter, you only think about it once a quarter, you reapply it once, you're never going to get it. It's never going to stick. So we needed to find a way to provide them a decision-making process they could use every day, not just when the investment committee, use it every day. Design a framework that could be used to lead a team, a department, a division, the C-suite, uh, a board of directors, and the investment committee, and, and in your side of the world, project management, a framework anybody could use. Then the extra advantage to that is we can add the leadership and stewardship behaviors that we know from neuroscience will amplify and improve decision-making outcomes from that frame. And so it's really important to us that Really, from that point forward, everything that we've been working on, we have done so with an eye of let's making sure let's make sure this framework can be used in any situation, any scenario, uh, not simply limit to the financial services. And that, by the way, is also one of the lessons. Um, and keep it as simple as possible. Other that's one of the objectives, and that is one of the lessons that did come out of Katrina. The other government agencies have very complex hurricane policies and procedures and the like. Uh, but unfortunately, with that complex policies and procedures, in the midst of a crisis, the people couldn't execute. Mm. Whereas the Coast Guard, uh, the mission is very simple, same lives. And so all the Coast Guard officials had to do to all the Coast Guard men and women who were in place responding to Katrina was, every opportunity you see to save a life, take that opportunity. Don't worry about the paperwork. Don't worry about this, that, or the other thing. Focus on saving lives. Very simple. Save lives. And so that's clearly one of the outcomes of behavioral governance is how to simplify that decision-making process so that can be used to amplify and improve the outcomes. Mm, yeah. It's amazing how bureaucracy can sometimes hijack simple decision-making and certainly to an extent taking effective action because you're worried if you're stepping outside the procedure, that you'll get into trouble for doing for taking that initiative. But that, conversely, is is the right thing to do. Unfortunately, people forget about that, and they're more concerned about their 
their livelihoods maybe um that their jobs or their careers are at, at risk and 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 i guess that's that's where the disconnect can come in uh between what is effective leadership versus what is uh, uh, shall we say being too author- authoritarian sorry i got there in the end yeah you're correct i i would add to that that uh people that lean on complexity there's several reasons why people leave but lean on complexity one is there's some really brilliant people out there. That's all they can lead on. I mean, that's, uh, God bless them. But for the rest of us that aren't the academic rock star, what professionals need to understand is that complexity is an inhibitor to the formation of trust. Mm. Just the opposite of what we think we need to be doing as professionals. We think as professionals that we need to meet with clients and prospects and show them everything that we know. You know, you can trust me because I know this industry jargon. I know the legalese. I know these really big academic terms. Whether you, the prospect, and the client get these terms or not, uh, you know that I know them, and therefore you can trust me. But we know from neuroscience what's actually going on in the head is just the opposite. Uh, complexity generates the hormone in the brain, cortisol, which is the cave person fight or flight hormone. And the presence of cortisol in the brain is the inhibitor to the formation of trust. So as professionals, financial professionals, project management professionals, if we want to be trusted, if we want to be viewed as serving in a, in a critical leadership and stewardship role, the imperative is on the leader and the steward to simplify that message. That's brilliant. And it also answered my next question about <laughs> how can leaders use behavioral governance to build trust <laughs> with their employees and stakeholders? And you've just, uh, is there anything more than reducing the complexity? It, uh, in I guess it's all about communication, right? In that regard, uh, when you talk about simplifying the message. Uh, but is there, a, is there another element to it within the process? Does that need to be simplified? Sometimes you can't avoid complexity because there's too many variations, but or maybe you can. Does that make sense in terms of where I'm going with my question? I think I'm just asking, is there anything more in that um, trust equation besides the simplification of that communication? Yeah. The neuroscientists now know that there's three things that are critical to the formation of trust, and there's a specific order to the three things. The first item that has to be demonstrated is compassion, uh, that I'm going to act in your best interest. Uh, I am a selfless servant as opposed to self-serving. Second is character, uh, that you're a person of good character. I'm not going to trust you if, you know, you're a dirtbag. You know, you just got done robbing a convenience store. And then the third is competence. So again, there's an order to the formation of trust in our brain. The first is, do I think you're acting in my best interest? Do I think you're a person of good character, a person of integrity? Do I think you're on it? And if so, if those two first items are in place, now I am willing to look for competence. Now I'm willing to listen to you and say, all right, what do you know about this subject? What is your area of expertise? Uh, and again, if you jump into competence by demonstrating all your legalese and so forth, you're, gonna, you're not going to build trust. But relative to competence, the critical item there is uh, discipline, uh, having a framework, because most problems in the regulatory world result uh, because of an omission 
as opposed to a commission. So it's not what key decision makers did. It's what the key decision makers forgot to do. Mm. And you, I'm sure you saw the same, you see the same thing in project management. What gets you in trouble? It's not what you took the initiative to do. It's getting the project done and then the, you know, the, the supervisor saying, but you left out yeah. this, that, or the other thing. So it's, it's particularly the litigation that's going on in the United States, which is really pathetic. Um, fiduciary litigation going on in the United States. The litigation is over the things that trustees and investment committee members forgot to, as opposed to the actual decisions. Mm. It takes a, I guess that's the problem. It's the the dotting the I's and crossing the T's that tend to leave certain people in certain environments unstuck. Um, and, and it presents opportunities for people who are, shall we say, opportunistic in nature to say, well, forget about the spirit of what you've decided on. We're going to follow the letter of the law, and we can see some gaps here, uh, some frailties that we can exploit to our benefit, <laughs> because no yeah. one does litigation without some benefit, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, and we saw that in Katrina. I mean, you know, all the regulatory agencies that were so concerned uh, about following these complex rules and regulations that none of them had the courage to step out and mm -hmm. say, let's let's not forget what our ultimate mission here, which is to, you know, save and protect property and lives down in Katrina, uh, down in New Orleans. It does, it does pose some challenges for organizations trying to manage themselves effectively. And I guess one of the things that comes across in business is uh, opportunism from uh, bad actors, and how how can leaders, in your uh, experience, effectively manage that risk and protect their organizations that they lead from things like fraud? Yeah, protect from fraud. That's that's a very interesting question, and unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for that. I can remember uh, again back to the time period when I was heading up the Institute for Leadership at the Coast Guard Academy, I was looking for, I'm going to use an academic term, a psychometric instrument. So an instrument that you take, you know, an online instrument where it'll assess your leadership behavior, characteristics, and so forth. And uh, we were in the midst of interviewing companies that had built these instruments. We were going to select one to kind of use to model the Katrina environment. And uh, so I was scheduled to have a call. In fact, I had the call that morning with one of the top developers uh, in these instruments. And it was just happened to be the morning after the New York uh, State Attorney General, uh, Elliot Spitzer. Now, it's not a name that would be common in the UK, but in the US in the 2008 time period, uh, he was in the press front page of every paper just about every day because he was... Uh, going in and identifying mistakes, uh, not mistakes, dishonest activities, largely in the mutual fund industry, the money management in this industry. So he was being projected by the press as being this white knight. Well, it turns out the white knight was visiting prostitutes in Washington, D.C., and so he got exposed for that. And I remember being on the call with this, this gentleman who developed this world-class instrument to assess behaviors and characteristics. And he said, man, the person who who develops an instrument that can identify, you know, dishonesty, lying, wrongdoing, cheating, mm. will never have to work another day. <laughs> you know, 
it yeah. for the vast majority of us, it just doesn't exist. The instrument just doesn't. I mean, there are true members of society that have deep psychological issues. You can pretty much identify them, but you're not going to identify the next Bernie. I mean, there are sociopaths out there that uh, don't understand how their actions are going to impact or harm society, and they don't care. I mean, even when it's mm-hmm. brought to their attention, they don't care. And uh, how we ferret out those individuals, and uh, no, nobody has nobody has really figured that out yet. Uh, so it's very difficult to do. On the flip side, though, we can't. It's very difficult to identify those that are going to harm you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by the way, I've been through it on a personal level. Uh, this company, the company that I started uh, in 1999, a company called FI360, it still exists today. But I lost it in a hostile takeover in 2007, and uh, I lost it to people that I trusted. I mean, I, I selected them personally to be on the team, trained them. Never in a million years where I have thought they would have portrayed me uh, in something like that. So that's why I've got to kind of look at this there and go, man, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. A lot, of, a lot of people have it. But on the flip side, okay, so we can't really put our fingers on the on the bad actors and actresses uh, until it's too late. But on the flip side, the benefit of behavioral governance is now you have behaviors and research and neurological capacity to identify the exemplary benefit. And I think that goes a long way in protecting outcomes. It's just making sure you're getting the right people. Jim Collins, the famous author, good to great, would say, you want to make sure you have the right people on the bus. And so the behavioral governance framework helps you get the right people on the bus and doing the right job. Yeah. Thank you for that honest answer. And yeah, it comes back to a point I made uh, a while back about when you're a leader, you obviously increase the uh, the odds of getting betrayed, even as a manager, shall we say? Because there's this, uh, there's, you, you see these uh, these kind of leader versus manager sort of um, infographics and posts, and uh, I, I've been mentored, and uh, it's it's been the case that really leadership is uh, is ha- how you is how you do it. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, management is how you do it leadership is deciding what to do um, and they're really two sides of the same coin there's no leadership versus management and what we see a lot of the time is bad leadership behaviors being classed as bad management and vice versa uh, good management being classed as good leadership so it's 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 interesting uh, but yeah coming back to that point about um teams and uh, having to trust them before you know, they can prove your trust was right. That's some t- something of a conundrum that, yeah, you'd only know if they're really clever about it. They wait until they <laughs> they're in a position to really benefit from that trust, and then it's already too late because you've built up that trust over time. So, and and what can you do? It's um, it's not an easy one. So, yeah, I guess move. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't know if that if that resonated. <laughs> that was my read. Uh, you know, let me let me fine tune what you just said. Yeah, I would say the difference between management and leadership. Management is about what and how. Yeah, leadership is about why. When the leader correctly identifies the why and communicates that clearly to the team, the team will figure out what and how. Mm. 
but it's the leader that's responsible for defining. Thank you for that, Don. And, and by the way, that's not mine. I mean, that's Simon Sinek. I don't know how much the UK is watching the TED Talks. Yeah. Do you guys watch TED Talks? UK? Yeah, yeah, we do. And and there's yeah. so many so many of my colleagues who actually rave about Simon Sinek. And uh, I've seen a few of his speeches that they make a lot of sense. And yeah, he's, he's big here in the UK as well. Talking about, yeah, and he's a wonderful example of taking complex ideas and making them simple. Mm. Wonderful illustration. I'll have to go back to that book. <laughs> Start with why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. It uh, it is interesting. Why do I do podcasting? It's because I enjoy it. I enjoy having intelligent conversations with people like yourself. And yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to hear the great work you've done it's it's very inspiring i guess in terms of uh, you know there's there's all, obviously team cohesion is great for productivity sometimes you need to have like differing opinions but they can sometimes also spill over into conflict how do you actually manage that conflict so it doesn't doesn't persist longer than it needs to and you eventually reach Shall we say an agreement? I don't like the word consensus because that kind of implies compromise. But how do you get to that right decision, if that makes sense, and get buy-in as a group? Yeah. <clears throat> the short answer to your question is collaboration, mm. which is one of the 10 behaviors uh, that we've identified. It's one of the critical leadership behaviors that we've identified. What's interesting about the concept of collaboration is that is a rather new phenomenon in the leadership world. And what I mean by that is uh, prior to roughly 2010, 2012, the prominent leadership style was command and control, top-down command and control. Uh, with that was the notion that the CEO was all-knowing, the CEO responsible for setting the direction of the organization, the agenda for the organization, and the role of everybody else was just to fall in behind the CEO and, and uh, do the task. Uh, beginning around that time period, 2010, 2012, society started saying no more command and control, no more top down. What we prefer is a leadership style that's more collaborative. What we prefer is the CEO coming into a boardroom and just randomly picking a chair uh, around the table as opposed to automatically assuming that their, their place is at the head of the table. The role, like we just said, the role of the CEO is to come in and say, this is why we're doing it. This is what we're trying to accomplish. This is our goal, what's our value? And then step back, step back, and allow the team then to figure out the what uh, and to execute. Uh, the role of the leader is to make sure that when it appears that the discussion is beginning to wind down, that people are beginning to make decisions of what we're going to do next, it's the responsibility of the leader to call a timeout and just make sure it was everybody heard that everyone's opinion around this table get presented. Uh, and this is why it's critical for the leader to know the personalities of all the people that are part of the team. You know, the, the introverts get an opportunity to express their opinion, or, or do we just have a, a loud talker kind of step over uh, everybody else? So that's a big that's a big shift. And by the way, we can test. We are doing, uh, again, psychometric testing of professional. And what we can tell you is that there's basically an age break. I'm going to say it's roughly 45 years. 
if I'm testing a professional that's over the age of 45, of the 10 behaviors, I can bet that collaboration is going to get one of the lowest scores. The other additional law scores is going to be being adaptive, which is one of the 10, and being aligned. And all of that comes back again to listening skills. A great leader today, like I said, they they define the why, others the what and the how. But as new ideas come up, the CEO has to have that patience, those listening skills to think about, well, how can we adapt to what we're currently or how does this suggestion that's being made align with our goals and objectives, align with our culture or ethos? And like I said, how does this discussion, are we truly being collaborative? Is everyone being heard? Is everyone contributing? Or is one particular person driving the agenda? Makes sense. And I've been in meetings where you get a mix of people and there is that one person who likes to talk. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would say sometimes it has been me, admittedly. <laughs> But yeah, that can uh, that that does there does need to be that collaboration and that balance. And uh, I mean, it's been great. I just have like one question I'd like to ask on the behavioral governance side, uh, and then maybe well maybe two more, and then we'll go into wrap up. I guess first one, and they're both kind of related in terms of time horizon and looking out into the future. How would leaders use behavioral governance to prepare their organizations for the future in in the context of you know how do we get ready to to adapt or 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 even uh, you know uh, what's it reinforce the values that we have does that make sense yeah so the beautiful thing about uh, behavioral governance about the study of leadership and stewardship is that uh, the quest to become better leaders and stewards is as old as the written and spoken language. What's the purpose of the Quran, Torah, the Bible? It's so that we can become better leaders and stewards to our clan and to our community. And there will never be a time where we can say, we have now discovered all there is to be discovered about being a good leader and a steward. That's just never going to happen. It's going to be constantly evolving. Uh, and hopefully, Evolving in a positive direction, we get better and better as we analyze and communicate uh, these concepts that we have. As I've mentioned previously, our goal with behavioral governance is not to make it so complex and specific that it can only be applied to the financial services industry. It can be applied to any. I take it even further. It can be applied to any activity, uh, any worthwhile activity. If you think about it, every worthwhile activity has a leadership you know, even if it's, uh, let's have a party Saturday. <laughs> Someone's got to take charge. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Someone's, someone's got to take charge and someone better have a checklist that says, you forgot the beer and you forgot the chips. So there's no downside to any organization adopting behavioral governance because we just got to, well, we say the framework will amplify and improve uh, decision-making outcomes. Whatever decision-making you're involved in, whatever the project is, uh, by applying a discipline framework and the leadership and stewardship behaviors that will amplify that framework, you're going to improve decision. And like anything else you get good at, once you begin to get comfortable with a particular skill, you can now evolve into the next skill and continue to grow and the like. In fact, we would say 
behavioral governance, the understanding of behavioral governance is part of your lifelong journey. You're not just going to apply it, you know, at your current work today. I mean, it's it's we're teaching skills uh, that will be applied for the rest of your life. Brilliant. And that's a lovely, on that note, I think that's a lovely point to wrap this interview up because it is about, yeah, that growth not just uh, not just for your organization, but it's your personal journey. Uh, how do you become a better person? How do you become a, a more responsible person that can hold yourself and others to account and, and get those right outcomes for the collective? <laughs> and, uh, and you know, something I just thought of when you were saying that is what we have not looked at is how behavioral governance will pop up against artificial intelligence. And uh, haven't we haven't done that research. We haven't thought about that. But my initial reaction to that is that will be the difference between the human and the avatar, yeah. is uh, the avatar will never uh, be able to exhibit the 10 leadership and stewardship behaviors that we're talking about. They, they, can, they can do the management component, the what and the how, but the avatar can't do the why. And uh, that will be the point of differentiation. Boom. That's the mic drop moment. <laughs> I'm going to have that. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Brilliant. And uh, I guess uh, just to wrap up uh, this wonderful conversation, um, do you have three books you'd like to recommend to our listeners? I have a couple that I have. Um, are you talking about that I have written or that I have read or both? We, either or, yeah. Yeah. Both. The, the one that I person I like the most is the book I mentioned previously that I wrote for the Native American Indians, mm -hmm. uh, only because it 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 uh, we're taking the law and mm -hmm. uh, integrating that with indigenous wisdom, historical wisdom. And um, we put a lot of work into that. In fact, uh, the book itself won the, uh, was one of the winners of the American Graphic Design Award for books uh, for that particular year, 2000. That's one of my favorites. In terms of today, I have found that uh, I have no, I've written like eight or nine books and handbooks over the time, and it's just not in me to write another book today. And it's not because I don't have ideas for it. It's just that the ideas are flowing so fast. I can't get them down on paper. Uh, and I can get them into short. Uh, and the other thing too, is we're finding through neuroscience is uh, micro learning is far more effective in making a difference and in retention than traditional learning. So the traditional one hour, 50 minute course or podcast or training module is not as effective as the five minute to 10 minute. And so my attention in writing has been more to the, you know, get that particular slide or soundbite or podcast to a concise message as concise as possible which is actually often more difficult to do than writing a page for a forthcoming book. And videos have just become so effective. You know, the other comment I would make, online learning, I have been opposed to online learning for decades. I never felt it gave you the same sense of participation as being in a classroom. But with advancements we have today with technology like this podcast, we have reached a point where we can actually probably amplify and improve upon traditional classroom work, uh, with online and virtual training and so forth. And so that's long-winded answer again to, I don't see myself writing a book anytime soon. <laughs> I, 
I really want to take advantage of all this new technology and new ways to reach people and, uh, you know, get to the world in bite-sized pieces that people can digest a little bit more easier than sitting down and, and having to labor, people having to labor through one of my books. That's brilliant. And I would recommend YouTube shorts if you can condense those ideas, note them yeah, yeah, yeah. and then, and then create a video, a short video. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what we're doing. We just started this um, three weeks ago. Hmm. I don't want this to be a sales speech, but three weeks ago, we started a weekly subscription where um, all the content that we were that we have developed for the classroom training is now being carved up, being repackaged as micro-learning, you know, these five to 10-minute videos. Hmm. And every week, uh, for the people that are on the list, we send them a video and uh, what we're finding, we didn't realize how much writing we have been doing in terms of articles. And in the case of Dr. Sean Hanna, has published research. Every week, we can not only send out a video on a particular topic, but also an article to go with it. And uh, so we'll see how that, that gets received in the marketplace. I suspect that'll get a lot more pickup than a traditional training. I can see that happening. And uh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll add your those details into the show notes for anyone who's interested. And uh, that comes to my next point. Where can our listeners find out more about your work? By the way, the organization that there's two organizations I'm tied to today. One is Street Ethos. And so the easiest email uh, to reach me is Don at Three Ethos. So the number three, the numeric three, and then the word ethos. Uh, I'll spell it phonetically, Echo Tango Hotel Oscar Sierra.com. Uh, ethos, by the way, is an ancient Greek word. And uh, Aristotle and Plato talked about the fact that you can tell a lot about an individual or organization by three things their core value, their behavior, and their decision making. So, what did I just describe? Behavioral government. Mm -hmm. Simple. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So that's what we mean by it's just always written in spoken language. We've always been, how do we become better? So that's the easiest way to email me is Don at 3 Ethos. In terms of the academic setting, I am the CEO of the Center for Board Certified Fiduciary. And uh, that center is affiliated with Wake Forest University, uh, which is located in North Carolina. And so that's where I'm, I'm hanging out from an academic standpoint. It's the Center for Board Certified Fiduciary. Wonderful. Thank you, Don. I'll add those details to the show notes for the listeners. Don, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Dr. This podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business, IT, and digital finance. Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, this show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations.